Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, it's Lainey. It's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. Where everything has just been thrown into chaos. Yeah, this is what happens. Like, every time Beyonce does something... Uh, we have to rearrange our schedules or we panic to try and rearrange our schedules. It's full panic. Like the first thing that happened uh, (laughs) this morning, it's Monday evening as we're recording. So the first thing that happened when I saw the trailer for Homecoming, um, Homecoming, the Coachella, you know, auteur, it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, like the truth or dare of, it's time, right? This is a concert film in a way that is going to be way more than just a concert film. Yes. The first thing I did was secure my Beyonce merch and be like, oh yeah, I just got that out of the laundry. Okay, good. And now. Yeah. And now, well, let's, first of all, let's like rewind to the actual Beachella last year, basically exactly this week where I stayed up. Did you stay up? I know I was in like the depths of personal drama at that point. My right. dad was in the hospital. Right. So I was carefully coordinating, you know, his health and his naps right. and things around dad. It's going to rebroadcast at this time. You got it the next morning because the stream was still running That's on right. the it's Coachella cycles. official. Right. So you got that. And then we did a special podcast, a special episode just about Beachella. Not sorry. Like, I'm still (laughs) delighted with that. It was a Sunday. Yep. Because it was Saturday night. Mm -hmm. I set my alarm. I remember for 1 a.m. She went on stage around 1.30-ish. Ishy. Um, Then you watched at 9 o'clock the next morning. That's right. And you came over that day. We, yeah, we threw everything out for Coachella. Like, that week's schedule. Absolutely. Um, like, sorry, Dad, but you know, things got to happen. And now, a year later, she's releasing the concert film, Homecoming, as you said. Um, it's April 17th, which is next Wednesday. It's a work day. And look, we're here for you. Don't misunderstand. Yeah. We're not going to podcast and be like, in a few days, we'll watch the thing. No. We will be here for you some way. Yes. But we don't know what that way is yet. I'm trying to take a day off work. Like, it- because it's Netflix. So essentially, the minute the clock turns over from April 16th to April 17th, in theory, Netflix is like, push button, there you have it. I mean, we could just do that. We could watch it at 12.01, like a like an all-nighter. Yeah, like Harry Potter days. Yeah, kind of. And then… And then, like… Regroup that's in the a, afternoon. That's a, Well, or not even. Like, that's a great start to your day. We watch it. We podcast at 3 in the morning. And oh. then, you know… I do love that. I, I'm sure you do. So we watch it at like midnight. Yeah. If, if we know for sure that Netflix will go, like Which it's go time. chances are they do because that thing wasn't geo-blocked. They're not, it's not going to be, they're going to drop it at 12 like across okay. the board, right? So listen, we come home Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. We sleep yep. from 6 p.m. 
to midnight. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> that's a skill that you have that I might have to certain acquire, people, but yes, Certain sure. people sleep from 6 p.m. to midnight. Yes. Set the clock for 12.01. Yep. Check the Netflix. Is it working? Great. Watch it immediately. Be one of the first. Then you come over, 3 o'clock in the morning. Oh, we, no, no, no. If we do this, I'm sleeping here. Oh, great. I'm you come over. Here. Great. Then we go right into the podcast in the middle of the night. That's correct. Get two hours of sleep, yep. go to work the next day. And you've already done the most important part of your day. That's a good plan. It's not bad, right? I don't mind that plan at all. See, this is what she does for us. She makes us work. She makes us innovate yes. <laughs> to find ways that we can appropriately worship her. We don't do this. Like, I wouldn't give a shit. I mean, we barely talked about Taylor Swift's concert film on oh, Netflix. Please. Like, I, I don't even know if I watched it. I? No, I don't think I watched it. But this is, you know, I'm thinking about anthropologists in a hundred years are going to be like, yes, what happened was that people would rearrange their schedules and their lives to worship at the altar of Beyonce yeah. via the new church, which was Netflix. I love this part of you because you are, you know, ultra cool and you never get like hot over anything that doesn't happen on Broadway. I get hot and- <laughs> over all kinds of things. But you and Beyonce, I can always count on you to like flip your tits for Beyonce. Well, but also because she makes things an event. She makes it dramatic enough that yes. it's like, yeah, we got to do the thing. Yes. And I remember how we felt like after watching Beachella. Like I remember I was up late at night. It was so I don't exhilarating. Think you slept actually between I- <laughs> the first broadcast and the, and the second. I watched it, I think twice in a row. Yeah, I- that's correct. Um, And then when you came over, it was like, you know, you get to see your best friend and you're like, oh my God, remember that part? Remember that part? Wasn't it so good? And, and this and the, that. And yeah. there are so many things and I don't want to pre-jack our, yeah, our no. podcast next week, but there are so many things that I am excited to mm-hmm. to talk about. You know, um, like the black college experience that she exemplifies in that show is not something that I think is part of everybody's vocabulary, that everybody even knows exists. Yeah. And then you watch that one limited, uh, you know, because you can't watch it now, that one two-hour show, and you go, I feel like I've been inducted. I feel like I know things. I'm so excited. And now we get to see the how. Like we get to see. (laughs) is what we get to see. We get to see rehearsal. Oh, oh. We get to see her, like, holding her version of a megaphone. You, how many times have you watched the trailer? Uh, several. Okay, so she's holding this thing, right? Like, is it a tape recorder that she's recording her notes on? Yeah, it looks like an old school dictaphone, I yeah. feel. Like, she doesn't trust an iPhone. I, I know, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but, like, that's the shit. And then whether or not she does hold a megaphone. You know in rehearsals they do it all the time. Yeah, like, yeah. You at the back. But that's not, but I, but she would never, that's not her brand. No, right? it's is, a microphone. It's, but even then, she's not going to correct the people at the back. She's going to tell whoever her director is mm-hmm. right beside her, they are sloppy back there. Oh, she's not even going to tell. It's and then, the note. Yeah. And then that's going to be relayed <laughs> up to the back. Okay, I, we're, we're, yeah, we, this is all things that we are hoping, expecting to see. And like I said, we will in some way or other uh, have our podcast air when we are all ready to talk about it together. Um, So it will be after the 17th so that everybody's had a chance, but, you know, do your homework that night. Yeah. That said, if you are itching until then, I cannot 
recommend enough that you watch Marching Orders on Netflix. Did you ever actually watch it? I did. It's so, it's 10 episodes about um, this wonderful marching band, which is such a slim way to describe what they actually are. Mm -hmm. But they're each only like 10 minutes long. You can watch the whole season in about 75 minutes. It's so, so good. Please watch it and get yourself hyped up. It's also really stressful. Oh, it's super stressful. Oh, I, but yeah. But I loved it. It was so good. And yes, I thought you were going to say, um, do your homework, hype yourself up, and <laughs> read your favorite text oh, reference to Becoming Beyonce by Randy J. Randy Tamarelli. It's never not time for that book. Um, if you really want to catch like some deep cuts and learn about Matthew Knowles and the references therein, mm-hmm. it's never not time for that. But yeah, no, I yeah. I think get hooked up, get like hyped up by watching Bethune Cookman, but also absolutely becoming Beyonce is is recommended reading this week. And listen to our podcast from last year about Beachella. I'm gonna do that. That sounds great. Um, I wonder so what we thought. We will link to it in the show notes for this episode. But yeah, do your homework. Listen to what we said about her last year after we watched the show to get ready for homecoming, which is what we will be doing. Um, but wow, like. All of a sudden, the next two weeks in entertainment, there is so much must-see, things are dropping, like little is coming out on Friday, I can't wait for that. Then 48 hours after that is the season, final season, episode one premiere of the biggest show on TV, Game of Thrones, then Homecoming, then Avengers. We're kind of getting to two out of the four of those today. Um, yeah, I, spoilers, but yes, absolutely. We are going to touch on the big universal obsessions for sure. Well, okay. Let me start. Let's start with Game of Thrones. This is the immediate, the hugest show. Yeah, absolutely. No show on television in the last decade has come close to these numbers. And as, um, is, I don't know how to like pronounce his name properly. So I'm going to give it a try as Matt Zoller cites. Zoller cites. Yeah. Yeah. Matt Zoller. As Matt Zoller Seitz wrote in Vulture, um, he said that Game of Thrones may be the last ever show that we all watch in community. I saw that. Yeah, it's so true. As broadcast television becomes less and less of a thing, Mm -hmm. right, and Netflix is more and more available to everybody and it's better because you can nag people and then they can go and watch the thing. They can watch the Russian doll or the To All the Boys or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, nothing has maintained like Game of Thrones, yeah. right? Sometimes there have been certain episodes. I know that this is an odd reference, but the season one premiere, the return of uh, Roseanne got 14 million viewers, which was unheard right. of for a show last fall kind of thing. Yeah. But other than that, there have been no shows that consistently over this many years get these kinds of numbers. But just to put that in perspective, 14 million for a show that like is on broadcast broadcast, that's ABC, mm-hmm. not even premium TV, right. which is what HBO is. That's right. The, HBO, of course, is, yeah, it's subscribers, right? Exactly. So more people have access to ABC Yes. Then do HBO. 14 million um, is still half of the average season seven viewership of Game of Thrones. 
Like they averaged between, I think it was between 32 and 34 million for season seven. That is in these times staggering. It's not going to happen. No, it's absurd. Yeah. Um, it used to be, yeah, it used to be that back in the day, I'm talking. Like MASH, Seinfeld, uh, whatever. MASH, MASH. But, but even in, in the earlier parts of peak TV when cultural criticism was sort of starting. Yeah. You know, your friends might have gotten like a nine or a 10 million kind of thing. And yeah. if you got less, that was quite embarrassing. And now everything is so fragmented that to get two million, two and a half is is quite respectable. Right. So these numbers that 30 million people, just, just to be clear, that is the entire population of our country. Yes. 30 million is every person in Canada. Correct. I don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying everybody in Canada is watching. You right. get the idea. But enough on or, an HBO show, like where you subscribe. It's another way of looking at it is literally one in 10 Americans mm-hmm. is watching that show. Yeah. Live on a Sunday night together. Together. Like that's another thing at the same time. As you said with Netflix, sure, they can boast like how many streams and whatnot. But the fact is... Nine o'clock, Sunday night, millions and millions, probably upwards of 30. I, I'm probably, I'm guessing it's going to get to 40. 40 million people at the same time are going to be watching one television event for the next six weeks. And to Matt Zoller Seitz's point, it's not going to happen again. No. Well, until… Yeah. Yeah. Like, not even let me record it and I'll watch it the next day, which is what a lot of people do with a lot of shows. That is not what's going to happen. People are going to watch it as it airs. Like, I might put it on a delay of two minutes just to, like, whatever, get my water and pee and whatnot. But I'm not going to watch it any later than two minutes after it starts. And I don't think you will either. Well, no, but what's interesting about that is the reason why. The reason why you're not going to is because on the one hand, you want to watch it at the same time as everybody. And even though people say, oh, I don't want to be interrupted. I want it to be a movie in here and turn off all the lights. It's because of the response on Twitter, on social media. It's because you want to scroll past 50 or 100 tweets that just say like exclamation, exclamation point. That don't say anything or gah or yeah. he died or whatever it is. Game of Thrones has been so consistent from the very beginning that they were willing to kill their darlings, that they were willing to shock and alarm and give you something to tweet about. Yeah. And I mean, they better. They only have like nine or 10 episodes every 28 months or right. something. Like they better have a, something to talk about, but- They've always been so clear that they're willing to do that, that, yeah, everybody does want to be together. Mm -hmm. Like, did you see that? Right. So on that note, I wanted to talk to you about ending. In the last couple of weeks, two shows with not anywhere near the number of viewers as Game of Thrones, but beloved shows nonetheless, that would be Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Broad City, ended their runs And to quote The Hollywood Reporter, they stuck their landings. Right. So Game of Thrones, even higher expectations, as we mentioned, a lot more eyeballs. When you approach an ending like this where people, as you've said, are waiting 28 months, that's an exaggeration a little bit, but not by much. A little, but not much. (laughs) Especially because the seasons go by so fast. Yeah. This is, you know, that you just barely get into watching Game of Thrones on Sunday nights. That's right. It's over. So there's anticipation. There's numbers, there's 
like just sheer significance. How do you give people what they need and not necessarily what they want or find a balance between both? What is the need and the want, Duanna, in this situation? Well, remember when Game of Thrones started, it was like, oh, uh, is the show going to divulge from the books that George R. R. Martin is writing? And is <laughs> and, and I wish you could see my face about the books. And is he going to catch up or what will happen? Like, I think we've all accepted that he's on a beach somewhere. He is not finishing those books ever. Have I told you my story? I don't think I've said it on this podcast. So really briefly, I'll take 30 seconds. I was at a junket. I think it might have been a Game of Thrones junket like three years ago. Staying at a hotel, I went to use the business center. I ended up sitting next to him using the business center computer. Like, I I was in the business center using my own laptop, but he was in the business center using their... And you know what he was doing? He was on, like, some eBay... Please say it was online poker. <laughs> no, even better. He was on some, like, eBay site or some kind of auction site waiting for a watch. Because, of course, I looked over. You know those hotel like computers are huge. Yes, and they of have, course. They don't give you a privacy screen. Like what the fuck are they going to invest in that for? Well, because you're not supposed to be doing anything private in there. You're supposed yeah. to be printing out the PDF that won't digital sign. So or I look over and I'm like, there's Gur Martin and uh Gur Martin. <laughs> <laughs> there's Gur Martin and oh, maybe he's writing. Oh no, what he's doing is checking the bids on a watch that he wants. I'm, and I'm like, imagine the millions of people who at that moment would want to scream at him saying Finish the fucking story. Anyway, so to your point, no, he's not writing the end. <laughs> Dan uh, Benioff and D.B. Weiss are David doing- David Benioff and oh, D.B. Weiss. David Benioff and D.B. Weiss are doing it for him. That's right. And to be specific, uh, the first two episodes of this short and final season are written by- two other writers, Dave Hill and Brian Cogman specifically, and the final four are being written by Benioff and Weiss. And, you know. Say this. Why, Say I, this. I can't read it. You're trying to wave a phone at me and I can't. Uh, <laughs> uh, Elaine has just held up a Hollywood Reporter article that I think broke like 10 minutes ago that says Game of Thrones creator George R. R. Martin, quote, I don't think it should be the final season. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, of course you don't because you're just like, let me sit back and get some ideas and get some more cash. Anyway. Anyway, so I got to be honest with you. This is not the hard task. To finish up, so they have six episodes, which are something like 70 or 80 minutes long a piece. They're going to be more fantastical than anything short of, like Marvel movies, basically. And they backed up, like, to use an expression, I think Sarah taught me this one, they backed up the Brinks truck for it. Like, right. they I, threw money. Absolutely. So, yeah. I, I, I humbly think Sarah might have got that phrase from me. Okay. But, yes. <laughs> um, no, it's there's not going to be any expense spared, no shot spared, no nothing. But here's the thing. The ending to any show is not really the hard part. The hard part is two years ago when you figure out, okay, what is the ending and how do we back into that? Because if you think about just off the top of our heads, who do we want to see what's going to happen to? Cersei, Arya, Sansa, Jon Snow. Daenerys. Daenerys. Hot pie. No, I'm joking. <laughs> um, 
But like, uh, who who else do we have left? Uh, Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Tyrion's left. Uh, Jamie. Jamie Lan- is Jamie Lannister still left? He, he is. is. Yeah. Brienne. Yeah. Brienne. Varys. Varys yes. still in the game. Uh, Sir Davos. Fuck. He's still around. He is. Ugh. Like I don't, but I think some people do. Oh, you know, fuck. A lot of people care about that pervert Jorah Mormont. Yeah, he's still around just to annoy you. Yes. Um, and the dragons. A lot of people care about the dragons. I care about the direwolves. Sure. <laughs> so, but, I mean, there you go. Those are the questions, right? We have Arya's list. Oh, we, we miss poor Theon. Excuse me? Poor Theon? Well. I'm, poor <laughs> Theon? I know, but, like, he's still around for a reason. Okay. So you have all those people who need to meet their fates, right? Yes. That's all those people, plus, like, randos we have forgotten about. Mm-hmm. They all need to be satisfied in what amounts to 240 minutes of programming or whatnot. They all get big moments and big celebrations and so forth. Uh, Then we know that there's always at least one massive bloody battle, you know, with thousands of people moving in a and a swirl zombies. that looks like its own self, like, uh, oh, fuck, Sam and the and the White Walkers and the yeah, White Yeah, the Night King. All There's a stuff. lot of people. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff to be tied up. So yes. as showrunners, as writers, now it's just richness. You wouldn't be worried about how to end because when you're worried is when it's season six and you're like, oh, this should happen, that should happen. Everybody's like, not yet. We got to save that big thing, that reveal, that whatever, to the end. I think this is going to be more about when something is as hugely anticipated as this, um, this is more about does everything get satisfied? Does one of the people that we just listed get short shrift? Bran? Nobody said Bran? Right, Mr. Sensitive. (laughs) (laughs) That fucking guy, or Raven, Whatever you want to call him now. He's not a guy anymore. He's a raven. Right. Sure. And, you know, you sort of accept that your personal favorites, whoever they are, are going to come forward and fall back, that they'll get a satisfying ending, but not everybody can have, you know, the final thousand yard stare beyond the camera at the end, right? Who gets that? Probably Daenerys, right? I don't know. Like, I have no, I have no instinct about what to expect. Right. Who's going to still be standing and who will have fallen. Right. But you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. At the end, as the final yes. strokes of music. Yes. Like, that's who I would be worried about. Who's on about. the wide shot looking into the distance. That's right. Yeah. That's what I would be worried about if it were me. If I'm the composer, yeah. I'm like, really? I've bled my guts all over this show for years, but now you want something bigger? Yeah. Um, story-wise, I feel like they're in decent shape. Uh, that... Everybody needs a refresher, obviously, on all the things that have happened, part of which we're working on through this week on the site. But yeah, you're in a great place. There's so much drama. Too much drama is never a problem because it makes your show move like a freight train. Mm -hmm. Too little is the problem. When you're trying to stretch, when you're watching whole seasons while you're like, what is, is Brienne and Podrick still on a horse? What is happening? (laughs) Right. That's when it's sort of like, okay. Okay, so with that in mind, Let's do, let's on this episode pretend we're season six. What are we backing into for in six weeks when we revisit, the show is over, the series is over, 
what, in order to get to that episode of our show in six weeks, for us to be like, yeah, that was fucking awesome. I'm really happy with how that worked. What questions are we asking now? Like story questions? Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, obviously, the show is called Game of Thrones, right? That implies a winner. Um, So, you're figuring out, I'm sure there were arguments once, again, once George R. R. Martin, like, fucked off to the Barbados or whatever. Right. I do not know this to be a fact. I'm just <laughs> assuming. Um, there's a debate. Who should win? Mm. Do you get the the heartwarming ending where, yeah, it's, I don't know, your buddy Jon Snow or whoever on the top of the throne, or is it somebody bad? Is it somebody that we've always believed to be good who now that they get the absolute power is going to become evil? Like, that will break people. But this show is willing to do that, right? right? To have somebody who has been entirely virtuous or basically defensible suddenly turn evil. They'll do that. Like, they'll have the dragons eat everybody. Mm-hmm. I can see, yeah, the, the you know, the Night King mm-hmm. flaming everybody. Nothing is sacred, which is exciting, right? Mm-hmm. Those are questions to be answered. I think that will be what will make this most memorable this season. Because right. we've talked about the march to the end and everybody right. kind of coming back together, King's Landing, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Now some of them have to change. Now some yeah. of them have to be different than we remember them. Yeah. Because it's basically been a hike, as we as we talked about for yes. last week. As you said, everybody's walking. Or lots of people have spent lots of time walking. Jon Snow has, been, has spent <laughs> seven years walking. As has Daenerys. Yes. She has walked and boated Sometimes and so Sometimes she's flown, forth. but yes. yes. Um, okay. I'll tell you what my worry is. Like what I, you know, right now if I'm talking about what we back into. I will not be happy with what I worry about possibly happening, which is a deus ex machina. Right. Uh, which for the uninitiated deus ex machina is when you realize that they can't, it's too tight. They can't tie it all up. Oh no. And then the school blows up the whatever, the everything, which by the way, a magical all, wizard appears, right? Which yeah. they already did. Yes. And um, that's, they've done many times. Right. They did the reset already. Yeah. I don't think that's going to be the case, but here's the thing. Here's why Game of Thrones is so interesting because look, this is not on a basic level. This is not a show for me. It's not even a show for you that much. An epic sort of, uh, Viking era, otherworldly genre battle. It's not usually my shit. No, but the reason it is your shit, the Mm -hmm. reason it's my shit is because they balance out the massive battles and massive drama and the sort of Mm -hmm. fantasy shit with deep interpersonal stuff. Well, with lots of talky-talking. Talky-talking, but also not just talky-talking, like outwitting, outsmarting. Yes, by talky-talking. Yeah, but there was that whole season where Arya was in like a dome of a thousand faces with that one dude with Jack and Hagar. Yeah. Like that's all teaching her to be a craftier person. Yeah. And those are the, that gives you the fuel to, yes. to get through those battle scenes. Well, and that's too, that too, if we're like setting things up about what we want, need, et cetera. Most of the enjoyment for me in Game of Thrones has not been like dragons and special effects, but it has been the, quote, quieter moments where people measure their words and the things that they say to each other. Like my favorite scene probably of the end of last season, I mean, it's so long ago, as you mentioned, was 
when Tyrion dares to go back and talk to Cersei and convince her to come back and, like, join their alliance of, like, zombie killers. Right. And we hadn't seen them in a room drinking the wine together in a long time. And those wine-drinking scenes between Tyrion and Cersei where they're loathing each other and in a twisted way loving each other and trying to outsmart each other, that is when he figures out or she allows him to think he's figured out that she's pregnant again. This scene, that was the best scene in the finale for me. Like even though a dragon had turned into an ice dragon and blown down the wall and John and Daenerys fuck and all kinds of other shit happened, that was my scene. And I don't want to lose that. Like they have only six episodes. We listed how many fucking characters they have to tie up and how many storylines and what they have to get to. So I just worry that it's going to be a blind goddamn panic and we lose those really good moments of like talky talking. I don't think so because the reason I love Game of Thrones so much is because they're true to their word. All the people we've lost up to this point, how many of them are stupid? Very few. Like poor Tommen was stupid. Um, I'd wager Ned Stark was stupid. I mean, no, he wasn't. Ned Stark was naive, maybe, or trusting or whatnot. But like, the sh- but this is the point. The show sets up these people as being clever. Look, some people bought it. I'm not talking about your random extras. I'm not talking about like Walder Frey and all those people. But when they have said a Game of Thrones, even smart people bite the dust. Even people who are playing a good game bite bite the dust. Uh, I'm thinking about... Uh, Oberyn Martell. That's- Oberyn Martell, yeah. Marjorie Terrell. Yeah. Um, you know, people who were Olena Terrell, people who were worthy opponents, yeah. bite the dust. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not worried that they will lose that because that's what makes this show different. Smart people facing off against each other is their bread and butter. What I love, though, and what's going to cause drama and what people are going to hate on Twitter is you pointed out, oh, this is the first time we've seen Cersei and and Tyrion together in... A long time. Whatever. Like three seasons or something. Yeah. Um, Because those are the siblings who hate each other. Right. right? What we've always been told, what the construct of the whole goddamn series has been, is, oh, wait till the Stark kids get back together, though. At least the alive ones. Oh, wait. It's going to be great. It's going to be strong. Oh, here we go, guys. She's looking at me with her hurt eyes. Oh, I no. I can't wait for... Whoever and whoever to turn against John or whatnot. No, no, no. Fuck John. I'm saying you don't get to the end of this show with Sansa and Arya as a together alliance. You're not going to. Not Those siblings started off as the good siblings, but yeah. they're good direwolves. That cannot make it through to the end. That's not possible. Can one Stark kill another Stark? Sure. Okay. I'm down with that. Look, I can handle is- a Stark killing a Stark. This is the whole reason the show was so good. Everybody was shocked when they killed Ned Stark, the ostensible star of the show, in season one, episode nine. That's when they made it really clear anything can happen. Daenerys might bite it in episode three. Gone. All your efforts about dragons and, and uh, you know, the Khaleesi and all the rest of it, gone. But again, to your point, the talky-talky scenes, like one of my favorite things still is when she and Khal Drogo, who basically purchased her, who she was married to as a child, like have turned into having a loving relationship, right? Like they're yeah. quiet moments 
even with people they know they're going to dispense with, they still give them that time. Mm -hmm. So regardless of who bites it, and a lot of people are going to bite it, because if they didn't bite it, then the Game of Thrones would not be over. Like the kind of hint, hint here is most people have to be dead in order for you to sit on the throne unthreatened. Um, they're going to have the subtleties as we go. I'm not worried about that. Okay. What are you worried about? I'm worried about like, I'm worried about getting rigor mortis during like endless scenes of snow and hiking and like (laughs) just waiting for things to happen. And you know, when the Foley guys have clearly worked hard on Things yes. like the wall falling or whatever. I'm like, okay, I get yeah. it, but can you get me to some emotion? No more please? expeditions. Like, no. There's going to be some. Five people don't need to break off again to do an expedition to discover something and then come back. Like, I, no more expeditions. I don't want to see Bran on a sled ever again. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Like, make him, what is the thing that he does where he closes his eyes and he becomes somebody else? He becomes the, the raven War or whatever. Gang yeah. or whatever. Or blood, yeah. Yeah. Make him do that instead of be on a sled. Um, no expeditions, no sleds. <laughs> um, lots of talking. And I only want to hear, like, here's what I will say. We have six episodes to go now. Please don't give lines to randos who then I need to know who they are and, like, Google their name and inevitably somebody's like, you spelled it wrong. Um, <laughs> like, the only people talking should be our main players at right. this point. Oh, fuck. Like, you know, we didn't even mention Gendry. Oh, you see? On oh, the hound. I know, but like I was thinking about the hound, but uh, but yeah, Gendry, like, can you really care about Gendry at this point? It's, well, this is, I don't, but lots of people do. Maybe they'll get you to care again. <laughs> That's difficult. But yeah, you're right. Like, I mean, more talking, good dialogue. I need the good dialogue. It's not going to be like, I don't give a fuck about, like, that's the thing. I don't give shit. I don't give that many shits about, like, whatever, the zombie attack. Right. But I think that they know that. I really do. Because... I don't think so. I do. Because I think there are a lot of people who care about the zombie shit. But I'm not talking about the people who care. That's great. Those people can care. And it'll get tied off in some way or other. But they have... One thing I will say about Game of Thrones, I'm sure there are scholars of the series who would point to one episode and say, no, it didn't happen here. But when you asked us, everybody who writes on the site, to choose an episode to highlight, all of those episodes that are chosen have what you're talking about. They have the talky-talky. They have the emotional or the good sex or the whatnot. They're not merely battle epics because if they were, we could go watch Gods and Generals or something. It's meant to be that balance. And I do think they've done a good job. Somebody's going to yell at me and write to me about some episode in season two where they didn't, but they've done a good job of balancing right. the pathos and the emotion with the big sweeping ships exploding. All right. So we've set our expectations, I guess, for the season. We'll revisit, I guess, in six and a half weeks. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see whether we will be exhausted of the Game of Thrones hype by then because... Mm-hmm. You know, they're not out promoting it super hard almost because they don't have to. No. Everybody is well aware without mm-hmm. having to have Lena Headey or or Maisie Williams out there stumping, you know? Yep. So it'll be interesting to see whether, 
oh, the spoilers that show up on, you know, in the middle of the day on the internet or whatnot, whether they gain traction or whether everybody's kind of holding this down in a 30 million person sort of secret club until the end. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, next. A story you pitched to me initially with one dimension, but we read a little further and we were like, well, shit, this is all the dimensions. Hot tip. Always read a little further, even if you have <laughs> the bird in the hand. We looked at the headline. We were like, oh, yeah, we're talking about this. And then beyond the headline, we got into the juice, and Taraji P. Henson just kept giving and giving. It's the Variety article with her. Last week, she was honored uh, as one of the nominees of the Variety Power of Women annual celebration. Um, specifically for her work in mental health, in establishing a foundation, um, encouraging particularly members of the Black community to come forward with their um, mental health issues, to talk, to seek help, to provide resources. And that's why specifically she was being honored. She spoke extensively about that with Variety, but then really went on to have a like a broad, again, multidimensional discussion about her, her career status, her fights, what she's learned. I mean, this is really good. It's really good. And, you know, often, obviously, we read articles like this constantly. So do all of you who are listening. Sometimes the pull quote, like the headline is an attention grabber that's not the whole article. And the headline here is and isn't like that. And I want to make sure that we give it its due. Mm -hmm. The headline here is Taraji P. Henson says that she suffers from anxiety and depression. And I had to kind of check myself as I was saying that there because I didn't want to say Taraji P. Henson admits yeah. as though it's a confession, as though yeah. it's, and I should say Variety headline uses reveals. Taraji P. Henson reveals she suffers from depression and still faces pay inequality. We'll get to that second part in a minute. But I did think this was a big enough deal to talk about on its own. I feel as though, especially celebrities who are expected at a certain level to take on a charity, right, or to take on a cause, they often say, oh, it's something close to my heart. Oh, it's something that I care about. Or in very specific cases, like most recently, uh, Selma Blair talking about multiple sclerosis, that they'll say, this is something I deal with. But I think this is relatively unusual for somebody to say, yeah, I suffer from anxiety and depression, and that's the headline. Yeah, I think it's relatively unusual generationally, too. I think a lot of our younger celebrities Gen Z celebrities have been more and more open about revealing their struggles with mental health and addiction. Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, recently Justin Bieber. So I think that's a testament to the good work that people are doing, encouraging 
a younger generation to model talking openly about it. But as we know, there is an older generation for whom this was not like the regular thing. You suck it up. Well, it was two things, right? It was you suck it up because you feel bad. It wasn't recognized as being a legitimate illness. We are just at the beginning of understanding that mental health issues and depression and anxiety are in many cases, not all, but in many cases are illnesses in the same vein as the flu and as cancer. They are things that happen to people through no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. It's not a moral failing. Yeah. And you just deal with it medically and getting health the same way that you do with your, I'm not trying to trivialize anything, but you know, there are, I'm trying to think of how many articles in the past two decades would have been devoted to, oh, say, psoriasis or male pattern baldness. And now we're beginning to get to the point where mental health is like, oh, yeah, this is an issue that I deal with. And to your point, full credit to young people who accept that as part of their MO for kind of being the trailblazers. And to your point, though, we're not hearing the 40-somethings, the 50-somethings, the 60-somethings as often um, sharing in detail their their struggles with depression and anxiety the way Taraji is here. Um, and I'm, I don't want to say it's refreshing because we have to take away that like, that it's something that needs to be courageous. Yes, in our times for sure, because of how it's set up, that there's shame and stigma. But we need to get to a point where it's just like, I have diabetes, I have depression. It, it's the same. It's factual. That's yeah. right. So hearing her be like, yeah, I have a hard time. I'm really struggling or I do struggle a lot. And here is what happens to me. Here is what I need to work on. And she has a son. And she's also spoken about the fact that she worries about her son having the same. Um, And there's an added layer here in the black community. It's even more of a taboo still where... Um, and she has spoken before, where black men in particular um, have had to uphold like a certain strength. So this added pressure on top of already a stigma that is pervasive in society is something that she's constantly thinking about, which is why she set up the work of the foundation to encourage people to, you know, attack the stigma, to reduce the stigma, to reduce the shame so that more people can get help. Right. And the foundation is called the Boris Lawrence Henson Foundation. It's named after her father and in memory of some of his struggles. What I like the most about this article, though, and about this conversation is how nuts and bolts it was. Mm -hmm. It's not about uh, the feelings and then after the rain comes the sun and whatever. She's very practical and literal about You have to do it regularly, and when I don't do it regularly, I don't feel as good, and after the first time I went, I thought nothing happened because that's not how it works. They're not a magician. They're not there to fix you. It's a lot like any given article in Shape magazine, you know? It's a lot like an article about doing deadlifts or whatever. (laughs) You, I'm not joking, possibly because I I see the- Deadlifts was just so- like random. Well, I maybe I see the work as I would much rather go to therapy and work out my yeah. issues there than I would go to the gym. 
But, you know, we're now at the point where everybody understands mm-hmm. that physical activity is good for you. And it makes sense. Mental activity is also good for you. And You're I, right. She goes right into being like, I have to see my therapist. I have to go. I have to, you know, I have to make sure it's a weekly thing. As you said, it, it becomes, it's so nuts and bolts. Yeah. And she's really specific here. And to your point about destigmatizing this specifically for the black community, she has this great quote. And she says, I have a therapist that I speak to. That's the only way I can get through it, it being her anxiety and depression. You can talk to your friends, but you need a professional who can give you exercises so that when you're on the ledge, you have things to say to yourself that will get you off that ledge and past your weakest weakest moments. It's a professional, someone who studies the human mind and someone who has no stakes involved. Their job is to make sure you're mentally sound, whatever that is, and telling you the truth, which might hurt. Sometimes your friends don't want to hurt your feelings. If I'm going to change for the better, I need honesty. And sometimes your friends and family don't have it in them to be brutally honest. I love that, not just because she's being open about her practice and her, you know, choices to go, which at this point I do think that is certainly not shocking if somebody says, oh, I go see a therapist. That's very elementary. But I love that she's sending that message of, hey, that's great. You have friends and family. That's wonderful. You need those people. That's not the same thing. Mm -mm. It's not enough. I loved that. I thought it was really important. But she solidified it by saying, here's what your friends and family can't give you is a set of tools and exercises. So, you know, to go back to your deadlifts thing, when she's going to therapy, she's leaving with exercises, homework. Hey, the next time these feelings come up, the next time these anxieties come up, the next time you have negative self-thoughts, this is what you say to yourself. This is what you work on. This is what you look at. This is what you turn off. Right. And that is super helpful. Again, not just because it's uh, helpful and in being a prescription, uh, but also in demystifying therapy. I think a lot of the reason that there is still stigma, aside from you're not allowed to show weakness, is a leftover idea, again, from the older generations. Mm -hmm. You've heard your parents say things like this. I've heard my parents say things like, you know, well, what are they going to mess with your head? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? And it's like, no, actually, they're going to give you some very concrete techniques that can help you in X situation. Obviously, just like traditional medicine therapy is specific to every person. It's not the same for everybody, but you get the idea. I really, I really, really liked that. And the other thing I liked about this vein of things is that she has a quote in here where she says, you know, when I finish my job, I go home to my life. And that's very powerful coming from a celebrity. She's saying, I go home to my life and my problems, meaning we hear this all the time, but it doesn't always resonate. People who we talk about who are in show business, and we make a job here of talking about their work, but it's just their work. Their life, which may or may not include work, is what's causing them stress or mental Mm -hmm. anguish or has to be dealt with. Everybody has a life and problems regardless of what their job looks like. Yeah. And I think that for her, when I really liked, you're right, I really liked how she compartmentalized where she was like, sometimes the work, playing a character, having your makeup done, doesn't make the things that are fucking shitty at home go away, which is relatable to everyone. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, it's nice looking at work the same way that sometimes at work it's like, oh, well, you know when you're at work and they're like, oh, today we're having a catered lunch or whatever. There's cake for so-and-so's birthday. And you're like, that's great. It doesn't mean I'm not mad about that thing you just did where I have to work Saturday Mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Similarly, yeah, all the glamorous clothes and fun and even money in the world don't take away from I'm arguing with my mother right now or I'm having a problem with my neighbor or whatever. On top of the fact that she works, well, like in most industries, um, in a place where equality is not there. Right. Like, and the difference being, and this is what's so interesting. Yeah. Cause she goes into, as the headline points out, uh, conversations about financial inequality and so forth. And the difference in the entertainment industry is that it's so out in the open, mm-hmm. which is both better and worse than other industries. Right. But you know, yes and no in the sense of, yeah, it's wide open, but there are very few stars who are getting this specific about money. I mean, she's like, you know, there are very few interviews that we read where she's like, yeah, on this movie, they offered me this and I wanted this and they came back with this and I felt like I had to take it and I ended up getting an Oscar for it, but like, here's how much I got paid. Right. So specifically, you can usually look up stars' salaries uh, years or decades after the fact. Right. You'll hear... Uh, it was really at its peak, circa Julia Roberts, circa rom-coms. Yeah. It would be like, oh, so-and-so got a $20 million paycheck. That was a big deal. Yeah, but they don't talk about it. That doesn't come out of their mouth. Exactly. No, it's it was reported and then you find out. Yeah. I in She's now talking in so many words about what she was paid for. Benjamin Button. Right. Now, that's still 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. God, is it 15 years ago? we're getting there. Um, If if we're not there, we're getting there. You know, it's not whatever she was negotiating for last week. No, but but she was pretty specific about the fact she wanted $500,000. They initially offered $100,000. Finally, they came up, but only, I say only, but only to $150,000. Right. And she specifies, I'm not saying that Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett shouldn't have got what they got. She says they can open movies. They do open movies, and I don't. That's no critiques here. I'm just saying the money that I wanted was what I wanted. Right. Yeah, so basically she went in with what she wanted, and they came back with 20% of that. (laughs) Right, and then she ended up getting only 50% more of that. But anyway, um, she gets real specific, and then she goes on to say that There was another studio, she doesn't name the studio, that had previously worked with her, knew her rate, paid her rate, and then wanted to work with her again and pay, like, offered half. Right. Like, Like, (laughs) because you did a good job for us, thank you so much, (laughs) and now we'll do less. And she walked. She walked. Which, you know, who's, that's, again, that's the joy of a story that you can tell after the fact, yeah. right? That she gets to tell that story now because now she's Cookie Lion and yeah. her profile has gone up immensely. But the thing that's so refreshing, to use your word, I think about this, is that there's no fear anywhere in this conversation. There's no part of her that's like, oh, 
well, I shouldn't say this, but eek, some people acted like this or I blah. She's just like, no, here are the bald facts. Yeah. This is how it was. This is why it didn't work for them again. The end. Well, I mean, she's quite matter of fact about even on Empire at the beginning, they weren't paying her that much. And then as she says, Cookie became a thing and she was like, listen, my character is a thing. You have to pay me more. Now, she clarifies that they didn't really fight her too hard on it. Like it wasn't work to be paid what she was worth at that point because Cookie was so good, but well, she still she, had to ask. She, well, she says, I had to fight. Yeah. You know, and I think that that is the, that's the overall statement. I think the idea is, you know, I didn't have to fight that hard because you can point to, yeah, a Cookie is a thing and all the press and right. whatever. But even then, even if Cookie is a big thing, even if you are the breakout star of the show, which she was, nobody's going to come to you and say, thank you so much. Here's more money. You have to go swing for it and be prepared that even though, I think this is where people get, I don't want to say women, but I think this is where people get frustrated because you think, look at everything I've done. Look at all the awards I've won for the company. Look at all the business processes that I have changed and streamlined and whatever. It should be obvious. The money, the promotion, the whatever should be there. But business isn't designed to work like that. Mm -mm. Business is designed that they're going to give you as little as possible until you make some noise about it and say, no, I deserve this. And even then. Yeah. So I like that as well, that even though it's undeniable that Cookie is a thing that she deserved the money, she's like, no, no, I was still advocating for myself. Yeah. No, I mean, what she's showing here is that she is experienced with negotiation, that she has learned along the way that you have to. That, as you said, Duanna, it's a business. Nobody in business, unfortunately, I guess, is going to be like, wow, you're doing such a great job. Here, before, like eight months before the end of your contract, we're just going to give you what you want times 15%. Yay! Like, that never happens. No, and nor should you expect it. And it's not because people don't like you, and it's not because you're not doing a good enough job. It's because somebody above you has the directive not of keep, Elaine happy, they have the directive of keep costs to as little as possible. And so as possible is at their discretion, right? And mm -hmm. that's where the fight comes in. And she fought and she got it. She walked the time that she didn't get it. That is a luxury too, that she has now put herself in a position to be able to do. Um, but, you know, my favorite part in this interview is when She's asked, how much longer are you going to stay on Empire? And she's like, well, probably a couple years because I have to get to syndication. Yeah. Like, I <laughs> Now, we talked about syndication, I think, briefly last week when we were talking about, like, Saved by the Bell and, um, you know, how many seasons you have to run before you get to that. And what she's thinking about is, I'm not going to fucking walk away. I'm not going to be like Zach Morris. If people are watching this in 10, 15 years, I mean, I know that that's not the example she's citing in her head, but like, I'm not walking away so that in 10 or 15 years, when this is on whatever streamer is the thing in 10 or 15 years, I'm not seeing a cut of that. That's right. She's protecting her interests. I created this show, not, of course, she didn't create it, create it, but they couldn't have done it without me. I am sticking around for my mm -hmm. due. And, you know, before you go, oh, I'm crying for her. Yeah, no, it's, you know, to stick around is not the 
the hugest sacrifice, but it is taking her away from things that she might otherwise be doing, potentially bigger paychecks. Um, there's, you know, there are step negotiations. We've talked about this before yeah. where her salary will increase every year, but it's an ensemble show. The show is not called, uh, God, I don't know, Murphy Brown, where you yourself could hold up production if you didn't right. go. So she's lying in wait for that money. Part of which is the money that she's not getting on the negotiating table right now. Right. And I, but I don't think that people speak so pragmatically once again. Like we talked about the fact that sure, it may be public knowledge how much people are getting paid, but nobody's doing an interview. Like John Hamm, when those lists were coming out about Mad Men and like Breaking Bad and the highest paid actor on television, I think at one point it was John Hamm and it was 250K an episode. You remember that? Like sure. Alec Baldwin was there for 30 Rock. That was like, they overlapped at some point. Um, you know, John Hamm wasn't giving interviews being like, yeah, my take home is a quarter of a million dollars per episode times what? 10 episodes Mad Men had a season? Uh, yeah, 13. Whatever. So yeah. you guys do the math. That's what I'm making. She's the one laying it out there. And I don't think people are also being like, oh, I'm sticking around until whatever, season seven. So syndication comes in uh, and I get that check. Like, again, we often hear they default to it's, you know, where the character takes me <laughs> and how we're able to build and the writers I can trust. And then, you know, along come women like Ellen Pompeo and Taraji. Ellen, we devoted an entire episode to last season because, you know, they're giving us the actual line by line financial work all that, th all that fucking shit that like they consider beyond whether or not your character like, you know, gets you up in the morning. Well, and the best part about that is that they're not just doing it for our entertainment. It is, you know, it's talking, it's being honest, but it's also providing a guide for people who are going to follow in her footsteps. Like, you know, who's reading this article? Everybody who's a second lead on a pilot that's about mm -hmm. to go this coming fall or people who are negotiating for movies with bigger people or everybody listening to this podcast, she's pointing out, this is what I got paid. This is what they offered. Uh -huh. This is what they didn't get paid. It's giving you information. Like the opaqueness of paychecks is still one of the biggest barriers to changing yeah. uh, the inequality of pay structure, right? If you know what people get mm -hmm. paid, you can say, I should be getting paid that. And we talked last week about ladies who punch. Yeah. And one of my favorite parts is Sherry Shepard talking about how when she first signed on to The View, uh, she was told by a certain co-host, I'll let you read it to find out exactly how delicious this is. This is what I got paid this is what so-and-so gets paid. This is what you should ask for. Don't not accept mm -hmm. this, that, and the other. That kind of sharing of information yeah. isn't just, look how great I am. Look what a big star I am. Yeah. It floats all boats. Well, we talked about this extensively when Time's Up was having their membership meetings about negotiation. You know, Tracy Ellis Ross, remember that? Um, and she was like meeting with Time's Up uh, members, other actresses, and they were all giving their best practices on negotiation strategies. And this is, again, what women in particular are starting to do more and more now across many industries. We've gotten lots of emails from you guys in other industries where 
some of you say that you have like a regular Monday night group drink thing where you're all talking about this kind of shit in, let's say, in different law firms or in different like other businesses where you're exchanging and passing on that information on like a sort of whisper network of your own. Um, and this, it's just now no, no longer in Hollywood, I guess, a whisper network. Like they're just putting it right out on the table. Hey, this is what I'm getting. Yeah. And you know, the advent of the Google docs, uh, last fall, there was a big Google doc about what people got paid as television writers that has extended to non-scripted writers, uh, both in Canada and the U S there's no reason for that to stop Mm -hmm. anywhere. You know, I do envy people whose salary bands are posted. Yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a thing that happens in some jobs where you know that everybody's making between X and Y because that's what the job title demands. But there's no reason that those Google docs, whisper networks, out loud networks Mm -hmm. can't be for everybody. Um, and yeah, just in this interview, she's breaking down not just barriers about stigma, about talking about Mm -hmm. your mental health, not just barriers about talking about your, about your finances. Yeah. And why shouldn't she? Like we, you know, it's, this is a woman that we admire of a certain age, taking care of her business interests, Mm -hmm. describing all the thoughts she puts into her career. And then at the same time saying, oh, but I also have a life outside my career. And that causes me, you know, joy and angst and all the rest of it. Like she's just being kind of a model person. And yet there are some people who would find this off-putting, distasteful. And I I think that's where I'm building up to is that I wish that part of the conversation, I think it's great, of course, let me clarify that the mental health part of the discussion and the interview is getting like big news and big, making like big headlines. That's amazing. What I'd like is like follow-up headlines about Because I do think that that is misleading. Like, you know, she reveals she suffers from anxiety and depression and talks about equal pay. Like, that equal pay thing is is so not encapsulating what that discussion was about, really. You know what I mean? It was, yes, it was a part of it, but it was about, like, her, it was about her toolbox. Yes, absolutely. And her metal uh, M-E-T-T-L-E, like her tenacity in hanging on Mm -hmm. in situations where it would be more comfortable to give in, to let go. That's, and her, her, specifically her medal with respect to financial awareness. She's a single mother Mm -hmm. and she almost had to be good at knowing about money as many single parents out there listening can attest to, right? Like, You have to learn some shit real quick when you are the only parent in the home. Specifically, though, as you said, distasteful, whatever, talking about money and women, we've gone through this before, but more and more, like, I really want to start pushing this because financial literacy isn't really something, and I'm guilty of this because I do not work on my financial literacy enough, but it is something that has held women back in the past. Or perceived financial literacy, because I think there's this idea that it's too complicated, it's too difficult, and it's, or it's, I'd rather not know, because you're referring to the fact that there are parts of your financial life where you are not necessarily as well-versed as you could be. Yeah. Right. But I think there's that too. It's not so difficult that you can't approach it. 
The other thing I would like to see, the the marriage of these two things, the other question that wasn't asked, and no disrespect to Variety for a great article, but to me, the next barrier will be, okay, tell us about the night after you told your agent, tell them to come up 150 grand or I walk. Mm -hmm. Then you hung up the phone and then you were anxious for three days because you didn't hear back. What's that like? How is it to live in... Mm -hmm your choices? How is it to live in being, how is it to live in the place where you say, no, I'm not backing down, knowing that not backing down might mean you lose out on this. You walk, you know, you don't get to do that. Cause you said several times she walked away from such and such a project, but also she didn't get to do that project. That's what it can look like from that side. And I know we're tossing around big numbers here, 150,000, whatever, but also know, as I know you know, that that 150,000, we've broken it down before, not only does not all of it go home with her, but that might be her paycheck for three years. Yeah. Right? Um, So yeah, what's the anxiety like about sticking to your guns? How do you sort of balance the, well, I have to demand what I'm worth, but also it might not go the way I want. I would love that follow-up interview. I agree with you. I I do think this is as close to a perfect celebrity interview for me as it gets. Definitely can be improved. But I'll tell you why it's pretty perfect to me. And it's because we get a lot of messaging these days, not just from entertainment, but from everywhere about happiness. Specifically about like what you should seek in happiness, what doesn't make you happy, um, declutter to find happiness, where you find your joy. And she gets there, right? Like the discussion about mental health is a discussion about finding joy or at least working to a place with specific tools through therapy and through other resources to get to a whole place where self-care is important. Self-preservation even, right? That's right. However, it doesn't negate the fact that there are pragmatic concerns in life and career that are focused on money, are focused on negotiation or achieved through negotiation and financial awareness that can exist in tandem with the self-care conversation. What happens or what has been happening right now is that we have these books and we have these experts that, you know, go around and they give you articles about self-care and and looking after yourself, which is very important, but they exist in a silo, like a vacuum that seems to be independent and completely unrealistically separate from the day-to-day realities of what we're all doing, which is like, we got to work. Yeah. We all, yeah. Yeah. We got to plan. We got to strategize. We got to make money. Yeah. Or to boil it down, like your self-care bath isn't going to do much if you're sitting in the bath worrying about how to pay the bills. No, Gwyneth, it isn't. Right. And the other side of that, and I think this is I'm putting words now in her mouth. This is not in the interview. But I think the other side of this is doing this stuff is self-care. Starting a foundation or talking about things that maybe you kept secret or even fucking negotiating, not because you're going to make more money, but because it makes you feel powerful in yourself. Because it makes you feel that you can stand on your own two feet. That is self-care. That is knowing that you're going to be okay. That is giving yourself the security in a way that, yeah, a lavender bath 
is not going to in the same way. I'm, I'm not. But it's specific. It's nuts and bolts. Like a lot of those conversations are about like know yourself, empower yourself, but they don't drill down to that looks like saying no. That looks like seeing a figure, a dollar figure that is half the amount that you made before and being like, no, this is what I want. It's, it's also like, you know, very specific in the sense where she's like, I'm going to do this for two more years because I want that syndication money. Right. And that that allows her to take care of herself in all the ways, right? That, yeah, you schedule the therapy session after you get off the phone with your agent, you negotiate, then you go out with your friends. It's all the elements that allow you to feel powerful, to feel that you're taking care of yourself. Yep. Something that you hit on, though, that I didn't expect to get to is that, you know, you and I are two of a kind who are in the minority in that we don't talk about wellness and we don't talk about, you know, I don't know, spa retreats in yurts in the wilderness that are going to renew your connection to the trees right. or whatnot. But I didn't realize, and perhaps I'm very, very dense, but I didn't realize that all of that advice, all of that, like, take a walk on the beach and do some journaling and whatnot is under the assumption that it's being written for women who are not worrying about money or career. Mm -hmm. That it is being written for women who are being taken care of by an other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you known this all this time and mm -hmm. not said this to me? Why didn't you say that? No, I, I, I think I've written about it often in relation to Gwyneth Paltrow. Like, you know, a lot of these... and. Don't get us wrong. Self-care and wellness is very important, but it is so commodified or it's, it's so, it's become something that you can buy your way out of as opposed to looking at real systemic institutionalized problems that contribute to the lack of wellness and self-care. That's where I've criticized Gwyneth Paltrow She's like, hey women, you're feeling exhausted, whatever. You should do this. You should do that. And she never has a conversation about the fact that social constructs, uh, whatever the way that the status quo has been set up has been at a disadvantage or disadvantages certain people, certain demographics, particularly women that contribute to the stress and anxiety. Anxiety. The fucking bath isn't going to help the thing that like makes it so that single mothers have no programs to rely on to look after their children. That taxation rates are not fair to certain people who, you know, don't have the things that they have. Like, it is so fucking crazy to me. No, and we should be clear, that's not only Gwyneth. And I know that it's uh, the commodification and the purchasing of it. She's not the only one. I uh, And let me, don't get me wrong, I'm consumer 101. I fucking, like, love to buy. Yeah, but you're not buying your happiness. Uh in as much as you're buying a dress and not buying the answer to your stresses, when sure. in fact, the answer to your stresses is not having to deal with fucking Bob in accounting who talks over you in every meeting and doesn't see a reason to stop it. Yeah. And I have to be clear, though, I love to rant about Gwyneth, as you know, but this was an Oprah problem back in the day also. Mm. This was remember your spirit and being gentle about yourself and all those things, all of which are true, but Oprah herself was remembering her spirit in and between making hard-line negotiations that not only made her a rich and powerful woman, but I am sure 
gave her a sense of power and control. That's not to say, to go back to Taraji, that's not to say that achievements, external achievements gave her a sense of happiness, but it's 101 is taking care of your own safety and security. What is that thing, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Mm -hmm. Uh, 101 is taking care of your sort of concrete elements, your food and shelter and space and security. Right. And if those aren't taken care of, you can't get to spiritual Mm -hmm. enlightenment no matter how many baths you take. Yeah. And what she's done here, Taraji, is she's given us like a snapshot of what that house looks like that she's been building. You know what I mean? The thing that she feels safe in. What she needs is like the agents that help her, the negotiations, the therapy, the tools in therapy, but also the understanding of her own situation. Here's what I need. Here's what I'm worth. I have a dollar value assigned to it, like a concrete number. Yeah. And I I go and get that. Well, and what I love about this too is that in laying it out so concretely, you know, critics of us or of celebrities in general or whatever might say, oh, well, but these are Hollywood numbers. These are this, these are that. And that's not the point here. What she's doing and saying that I love is, yeah, it's still a fight. It's still something I have to go and get. She talks about, oh, I'm going to direct next year. That's still a goal that she has. She is still talking about how she has to be deliberate about constructing all the elements of her life to get somewhere closer to, if not happiness, if not perfect joy, uh, you know, a sense of of relative calm and contentment. She's very clear that even as a celebrity, a highly paid one, that it's a a process and a, a business that she has to undertake to take care of herself. It doesn't all magically come to be. And finally, we're ending on something that you sent me that I'm not being hyperbolic here, I was shocked that you pitched this. I was a little bit shocked myself. Okay, good. (laughs) Um, Because maybe not for the reason that you might think, though. Uh, So this is a story about Tom Holland, and we'll get into the specifics, but you might have thought it's not my story because I am a bit resistant to being an Avengers superfan. Uh, I live with an Avengers superfan. When I added you and Kathleen, I live with three Avengers superfans. It's a lot. It's not that I, well, or four, uh, lest I neglect the, like, child of my loins. So there's a lot of you. Um, It's not that I'm not a fan. It's just that it's exhausting around all of you to sometimes, you know, want to talk about something that isn't the Avengers. Oh, I have a different theory about that. Okay, that's fine. We just, like, there are very few things that we know more about than you. (laughs) You're just not the Avengers expert that we are, and none of us are the Avengers expert that Sarah is. But you're not used to being in that situation, Joanna. And I will say that, yeah, I know more about Avengers than you, and so does Kathleen. And I just don't think you're comfortable in that space. There, I said it. I don't mind being the neophyte. I just need a break sometimes. Oh. Whereas, say, Game of Thrones, those snotty book people have been drowned <laughs> out now. Or like, it's better in the book. It's like, yeah, yeah, fine. They all dropped off around season three. But the reason I was surprised that I pitched this is that there have been a lot of uh, internet boyfriends who 
the internet is trying to tell me are great and wonderful and I just get exhausted and right. I don't care. Yeah. And this person, Tom Holland, was almost threatening to be one of them, but is so endearing yeah. that I he's not my internet boyfriend, but I don't find him overhyped and overexposed. Right. So the story is that he, among all the Avengers, and there are many, is the worst. The second worst would be Mark Ruffalo, your love. I, I do love him. Um, but, but again, I not to, <laughs> yeah, go on. Oh, no, no. The worst would be Mark, no. The second worst would be Mark Ruffalo, who you love. Yes, I do. Um, but Tom, being the youngest, Holland, um, is the worst at keeping the secrets. And we know, we all know that like the big end game secrets have to be locked and not spoiled. So they went to extreme lengths to make it so that he couldn't spill the secrets. Well, okay. For the two people who don't know what we're talking about, of course, Avengers Endgame is out in what? Three weeks? Two and a half. Fine. God. Two and a half weeks. And of course we know, I like to see these spoilers early on Twitter. I told Kathleen when the black and white photos came out and you know who was revealed to not have, not have survived. It was very dramatic. But the headline, again here, the headline is important. This is a BuzzFeed headline. God love you, BuzzFeed, because you always have great headlines. But Tom Holland apparently wasn't even given the script for Endgame because he keeps revealing spoilers. And then there's that, like, second line, you know, the the one pull quote. uh, Quote, Tom Holland gets his lines and that's it. He doesn't even know who he's acting opposite of. That's from one of the directors. It's I think it's Joe Russo. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, he's... But, okay, in fairness to them, he's goofed... Tom's goofed so many times. Like, he's revealed that there's a sequel before he was supposed to. He's revealed, like, the BuzzFeed article, which we will link to, you know, sums it all up. So, yeah, they had to make sure that he didn't know... Anything. Anything. <laughs> so, but this is, what's amazing about this story is all the ways that all the things come together. So he's endearing. So A, he's not fired. Yeah. Like there have been people, I think, who have been fired mm-hmm. for lesser offenses. Sure. If he wasn't so great, uh, you know, Spider-Man could have met a different untimely end, maybe. It's amazing because... You can't do this on a kitchen sink drama. You can't give somebody only their lines and that's it. But because everything that they do is on green screen and they're isolating so many shots, they literally can sort of bang it off and have him just do his lines at anybody, (laughs) at somebody. I mean, I'm, I'm sure it was an exaggeration. Like there's no, I mean, I can't imagine that there would be no way, like he, what, he's not standing next to anybody? Like, are they completely using CGI, like for everything to do with him? Well, I'm sure they are. But also, I mean, this is, I didn't intend to get all tech on you, but, uh, you know, when you're doing a scene with another actor, the understanding is that uh, it's nice if the other actor stays there and gives you your lines, even if the shot is not on them, even if the camera is not on them at the time. But I can see a world in which, A, it's so CGI, and B, all these actors are so in demand and so busy that maybe they do have to shoot some of them separately. 
I thought you were going to say there's no way that his lines could be delivered authentically if they're just on a page. But oh, I, yeah, whatever. I could write you a dummy script, no problem, where his real lines are answered by somebody basically saying, like, rabbit, and <laughs> it would be fine. Uh, my favorite part, though, of this story, which is one of those things that maybe isn't totally true but has become true because BuzzFeed says so, is that in all the press junkets, they would partner yes. Tom Holland with, <laughs> with Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> So in that, the previous movie, yes. Right, so that when he was about to say something, yes. he would be like, up, 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 up. <laughs> no, no, that's a spoiler. Yeah, and you know, it couldn't be like Mark Ruffalo. Like, they would never put the two of them together because what's the point in releasing a movie? <laughs> <laughs> like, what's funny to me is that they had Benedict Cumberbatch with Tom Holland, like the stern English older gentleman with the younger English guy. Sounding so, like a spoiler is what that is. <laughs> yes. Right? Like, he would he would respond culturally, I guess, to, like, an older English guy in his same accent. Pip, like, pip, bold man. Yes, yes. Telling him to shut it, shut it down. And then Mark Ruffalo, for a lot of the previous junkets, was paired with Don Cheadle. So <laughs> Don Cheadle had to be like, shut up, you fucking asshole. Um, so, but I think Mark Ruffalo still managed or ended up giving something away. So great. But like, it had to be those people because like Downey wouldn't care. No, he would, <laughs> no, he'd laugh. You yeah. Would, yeah, exactly. No. He'd be like, I just got my 50 million, whatever. No. And whoever, Scarlett Johansson's not going to be awake yeah. to notice if anybody's giving away any spoilers. What? Exactly. Did that happen? Um, yeah. It, no. So if you go down the list, like Benedict and Don Cheadle were like, that was their assignment. I, I really, I do appreciate that, that they're like, listen, guys, you're, you're, you're really great, but also we have this other request. Can you just be on Holland duty here? And they're like, that fucker. Now, let me ask you one question, though. Are we giving this kid too much of a pass? Is there another situation with another actor or whatnot where you'd be like, get it together, do your job? Like, are we, is this sort of white male cute privilege that we're like, oh, it's cute. He messes up. Listen, I think that there are Okay, you know what? Here's the the other side of it. Have you seen the meme that's going around about Chadwick Boseman, which I will put in the show notes? So, Chadwick Boseman was asked, I think he was at CinemaCon last week. Right. And he was asked by a reporter like on a red carpet about Avengers Endgame, and all he said was, "I'm dead." <laughs> And the reporter, like, was like, oh, yeah, you mean in the snap, like, everybody kind of dusted, or you were one of the people who were dusted. And he was like, I'm dead. That's all he repeated. Like, his two words to deal with it were, I'm dead. Now, Chadwick can get away with that. If you're Tom Holland and you have this baby face and, like, you're already a people pleaser, that's part of your charm, I don't think he can pull the I'm dead off. No, he definitely can't. Um, but... I, I I mean, I guess, and, and I'm dead in and of itself, full stop, Yeah, is also a measure of control. It's amazing. Right? Like, it's also like, there is no story here. Yes. Like, the end. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I guess at this point, it is a, there are people who believe that all these leaks and spoilers are themselves a marketing ploy, that Tom yeah. Holland doing this is like part of his contract. I don't think that's the no, case. I think this I is think just, it's just... <laughs> I think it's the, 
And maybe people will accuse us of being hypocritical or me at least, but all the great things that you get with him being such a popular Spider-Man and it was no small task because this fucking franchise has been rebooted I don't know how many times. I think the Andrew Garfield one was just five years ago, right? So already people were like, again? And for him to have done a movie standalone and then made several appearances already in the MCU and people love him, that is in your package. So, But part of that is also going to be, oh, he's going to spoil something once in a while. It's like what you said last week about, um, I mean, this is like a completely different conversation, but in the Cardi conversation, you brought up Drake. Mm, And mm -hmm. you were like, um, you know, he's the emo rapper and he's all in his feelings and he actually didn't grow up in certain neighborhoods, so, so he can't be hard. So you can't want him to be hard, but also like the fact that he's in his feelings all the time. Like you, you have to accept that what you like is also going to be what he can't be. Right. Or in another way, you're saying you're, you have authenticity here, yeah. right? The authenticity of a young, eager Spider-Man who doesn't look like he's rolling his eyes all the way through Tobey Maguire um, means that you get a little eagerness, right? Yeah. The other thing that you get, and I say this as, yes, as a... MCU neophyte. See what I did there, guys? That means Marvel Comic Universe. No, it doesn't. It means Marvel Cinematic Universe. Jesus but Christ. carry on. Jesus Christ. <laughs> See, this, but this is why it's so insufferable because all you people are like, no, actually, that was Blade Ant, who's not the same as Ant-Man. It's exhausting. Oh, no, but Captain Marvel originally was Captain You're a name person. I was correcting you on a name. That's a title. It's not a name. They're different. In any event. Wow. What is great, though, and the reason that it might be like stealth marketing but that I don't care is because what they've done in releasing this story and in having his trip-ups be kind of an an ongoing thing is they're selling you the feeling, true or imagined, that the Avengers movies and all these superhero characters are a family, that they are a community, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That there's one little brother who can't keep his mouth shut. Always. Is absolutely on brand for these movies and on brand for all of these characters and for the way that, yeah, that Iron Man and everybody else treat him. Mm-hmm. And that's only great. So if it is like high level marketing, it's working because it speaks to exactly what it should speak to, right? As opposed yeah. to a manufactured scandal. Yes. It's, no, underlining Nobody's side-eyeing and doubting this. No, these people are all kind of bros and it's kind of funny. And it is meant to be received exactly the way we are, which is to be delighted. Wait, have you not seen Infinity War? No, I've seen, have I? Yeah, sure I have. You've seen this Thanos. Yeah, I know. Okay, all right. Listen, again, I don't always talk about this part of my life on the podcast (laughs) But I have to have a minimum of five conversations about Mm -hmm. Thanos per day, usually before (laughs) breakfast. But the adult in your life also needs to have that many conversations about Thanos. He might also be (laughs) tapped out at this point. There's a lot of Thanos conversations. Oh, but wasn't he like number one on the website getting tickets? That's correct. Yeah. And tried to turn it into a work event. So you see, I am surrounded at all turns. Um... It's, yes, I look forward to all of you going to see the movie without me, and then I'll go in a week when I can get tickets like a person 
uh, when all of you will be I, ready to go see it a second or fifth time, Kathleen. Me. And we'll go from there. I already have pre-bought tickets for two days. I know you have. A Friday and a Sunday. I understand, but you this is what you do with your time. I love them. Anyway, thank you for talking to me about Avengers. I thank you for indulging me in this goofballs goofiness because I, I really enjoy this. Um, we And thank you all for listening. Uh, check us out wherever you get your podcasts, and that's where you can subscribe. Leave us your comments, your reviews. And we will definitely be updating you on when the homecoming episode will be posted, but it also means that our regular Wednesday post date next week will not go forward. We're going to be posting on Thursday. Yes. In all likelihood to get you all the Beyonce-ness that you need and that we know you need. Uh, Thank you as always for being with us and for sending all your notes. We... Love them and got some great notes this week uh, on all sides of coins from uh, Everybody Under the Sun, a great one from Lavette. Thank you so much. And from Shireen. So thank you guys. And send us your pre-homecoming notes so that we can better shape our conversation. I know we haven't seen it yet, but you guys are going to be wanting questions. We are all thinking about it. Oh my God. Nine days to go. No, a week to go. Do your homework. Show your work. 